0: Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. If you find yourself coming back to listen to more and more of the Beach House 34 podcast, I would love it if you would give this a share or a like. It helps to keep the show going and I would be so, so, so appreciative. Now, before we begin... I want to mention that some of the information contained in this episode, it might be a little triggering for some people. It includes information about graphic crimes, uh, which is truly not unusual in in true crime podcasts, but this one even includes um, harm to animals. So proceed with caution. Now, multiple sources, were used in this podcast, uh, including the HBO documentaries collectively known as the Iceman Tapes, as well as the Iceman and the Psychologist, various historical newspapers, the book The Iceman by Anthony Bruno, Wikipedia, and a documentary entitled Murderous Minds, The Iceman, which is on Amazon Prime Video. Now, have you ever wondered if serial killers were born or made, nature or nurture? No one can seem to agree on this. No matter what studies you find, you'll find arguments on both sides of the coin. Now, I would argue, though, that this story you'll hear today weighs significantly on the side of nurture. But I'll leave that for you to judge for yourself. On April 11th, 1935, Richard Kuklinski was born to Stanley and Anna Kuklinski into a life that no child would ever want. Richard grew up in a low-income housing project in Hoboken, New Jersey. His dad worked for the railroad and his mom worked for a meat packing plant Richard was the second of four children in the family, and he had an older brother named Florian. Now, growing up, his dad would often come home drunk and for no reason at all, began to beat Richard or his brother. According to Richard, his mom did try and stop his dad, but it wasn't as if she was innocent. She too would often beat Richard with a broom handle And according to Richard though, her words were her weapons most of the time. Quote, she would use words that made him feel like shit. In 1941, Florian, Richard's older brother, died at the hands of their dad from a severe beating to the back of his head. He was only seven at the time the family was told to stick to a story that Florian had fallen down some stairs, which is what caused his death. And try as I might, I could not uh, locate a news story or even a gravesite for Florian. Now, at the time that this happened, Richard was five and now he was completely alone. The only child in later interviews, Richard would say that he quote, didn't like his father because he would beat me just because he felt like it. He would think nothing of coming in and smacking you. During interviews, Richard also admitted that it didn't matter if his dad had been drinking or not. Quote, he was a nasty son of a bitch, and he was until the day he died. Richard did not attend his dad's funeral, saying, quote, I didn't like him in life. Why would I want to go see him in death? About his mom, he said, quote, my mother was cancer. She would destroy everybody. When she thought I took too long to do something, she didn't hesitate to give me a swat here and there. She would hit me with a broomstick or something like that. It hurt. Richard's mom was Catholic and his dad was Polish. Now, his mom's belief was that harsh discipline at home should go right along with a Catholic education. Richard said that he was raised Catholic and went to a Catholic grammar school and was even forced to be an altar boy, as his mom demanded. As Richard grew older, he got bored very easily. So around age 10, he began abusing animals. He would tie two cats tails together and throw them over a clothesline to watch themselves rip each other apart now where he lived there was something called a community incinerator and many times he would grab cats and throw them inside this incinerator and then watch as they ran around trying to get out he would also take dogs tie them to the back of a bus or a car and then watch them be dragged until the dog just got tired. Because his family didn't have a lot of money, he often didn't have nice clothes to wear. And because he was tall and skinny, he often got bullied by neighborhood kids who would call him Richie the Ragboy or Hobo Richie. And Richard would often get beat up by this same group of kids. Now, the leader of this group lived downstairs from Richard. One day, Richard decided he'd had enough. He knew when this leader would leave his apartment. And so one day, Richard grabbed a clothing pole out of a closet in his apartment and waited outside around a corner for this guy to walk by. As soon as the guy saw him, He instantly started in with name calling and insults and out of the blue, Richard hit him with the wooden pole and he kept on hitting him. He just wanted the guy to shut up. When the boy finally stopped moving, Richard went back up to his apartment and he later realized that not only did he hurt this kid, he had actually killed him for weeks he was concerned that the cops would realize that it was him who had done it. But when no one came for him, he felt like he'd gotten away with it. He is later quoted as saying, quote, When I was a young man, I learned that if you hurt somebody, they'll leave you alone. Good guys do finish last. As he got older, he would lash out at anyone who humiliated him. Quote, I've been known to hurt people for no reason. I could be anywhere. And if someone humiliated me, I would think nothing of hitting them with whatever I had. Now, Richard eventually created his own quote unquote gang, and they soon began to plan multiple burglaries around nicer areas. Now, the money that they made from these robberies allowed him and his gang to afford nice clothes, and for Richard, gave him the opportunity to gamble, which he did quite often. At this point in time, the mob actually controlled everything in Jersey City. So after Richard's gang began to form a name for themselves, it caught the attention of Carmine Genovese. Now, Carmine was not related to the well-known mob boss Vito Genovese, but Carmine was involved with the Decalvacante Crime Clan. Carmine wanted Richard's gang to help him, um, and he would pay them well, but first they had to prove themselves. So what Carmine did was give Richard a picture of a man. He told Richard what this man usually did on a daily basis and where he would usually go. Carmine further told him that this man really loved cigars, Churchill cigars, which happened to be longer than typical cigars. Now, one day, Richard thought that he saw someone that looked like the guy he was after. At the time, according to an interview that Richard gave, Richard was riding a motorcycle, and he pulled up next to this car, next to the guy that um, he thought was the guy he was looking for, And the guy was smoking a cigar and he says to him, Cuban? Are they Cuban? Looks like a good cigar. The man in the car simply turned to Richard and said, fuck you. It was then that Richard got a good look at the guy's face and knew it was the man that Carmine was after. He then took out the gun that he had with him and said to him, nah, don't fuck me. Fuck you. And shot the man in the head. According to Richard, it, quote, took his head off. Like you see a pumpkin get hit with a shotgun or something, they just spread out. That's what happened. Now, during the interview with the psychiatrist, Richard was asked if he had any kind of reaction to what happened uh, during this incident, like sickness or dizziness or even nausea, because most people would immediately feel that way. Richard said that he didn't. He further said, "Quote, it's much better just not to care. If you care, you have baggage, you worry." After performing this task for Carmine, each member of Richard's gang received five hundred dollars. Now, after this initial success, they were hired to perform multiple similar hits, some of which earned them thousands and thousands of dollars, which ended up being spent on alcohol and gambling. Now, two members of Richard's gang at the time were John Wheeler and Jack Dabrowski. They decided that they together, just the two of them, would one day rob a card game that they knew was happening. Now, they didn't tell Richard that they were going to do this. And unfortunately, the card game was actually sponsored by an associate of the De Calvacante crime family. Now, remember, this is the same family that Carmine was a part of. One of the players in this card game that was being robbed recognized one of them and word eventually got back to the family. Now, even though it wasn't Richard's fault, since he was the head of his gang, his members were his responsibility. So these two members had to be taken out. Now, Richard, after a small amount of time, found Jack alone, and shot him in the head. He then did the same thing with John. Richard, at this point in his life, is 19. When the other members of the gang found out that it was Richard who had shot Jack and John, they didn't want to be a part of the gang any longer, and so Richard was left on his own. It was discovered that Richard, after finding that he really liked killing decided to take multiple trips to Manhattan just to kill random people who did nothing but annoy him. Now, typically he only killed homeless people. And since the police didn't put in a lot of work into solving their cases, it was easy for Richard to get away with doing it. Now in another story about this, it was said that Richard actually went to Manhattan and killed these homeless people for practice when he was asked about this, Richard said he estimated that he had killed about 50 people or so this way. Carmine, Richard's original meal ticket, ended up having to go to jail for gambling charges. And now Richard, he's left without any work. Money's getting tight and his temper was shorter than ever. One night, Richard had a run-in with a guy who ended up re- beating up Richard so badly That Richard had to walk away and eventually get into his car and left. He later found that the man and his friends that had beat him up were actually following him in their car. As they got close, Richard pulled out his gun that he kept stashed under his seat and shot all three of the men. He then disposed of the bodies by throwing them into a bottomless cave and then took their car and rolled it into a river. Now, eventually Carmine does get out of jail and almost instantly he contacts Richard to do another job for him. But what was different this time is that Carmine wanted this guy to suffer. He wanted Richard to bring a part of the man back to him after he had done the job. So after Richard had located this man, he created a ruse where the man would help him with his car's engine And while they're both looking at the engine, Richard hit the man over the head and knocked him out. He then drove the man to a remote location where he tied him to a tree and smashed his ankles. He knew he had to bring something back to Carmine, so he cut off the man's head and put it in a plastic bag. Now, Carmine, he was impressed and uh, paid Richard $10,000 for the job. Richard later admitted in the interview with the psychiatrist that he had a quote unquote thing where he would take quote somebody to a cave and tie them up or tape their hands and feet together. He would then set up a camera to record and then leave the person there because he said eventually the rats would smell them and start nibbling on them. The people would scream and yell and eventually more rats would show up and would consume these people eventually." Believe it or not, Richard did say he thought this was distasteful, but he never stopped using this method to get rid of some people. Richard was so good at his job that word soon got out about him. He wasn't able to become a part of any mob family because he was Polish and not Italian, which was required. But this actually worked out pretty well for Richard because he could then work for any mob family who needed him. Carmine, one night, was murdered while he was cooking in his kitchen. Now, Richard did not do this killing, but it was never solved. So Richard, again, needed money. You know, Carmine was his only real ticket. So Richard began to do legitimate work for a trucking company. But he eventually began to steal the items in the trucks that he was driving and even at times hijacked the trucks themselves to sell all of the goods. It was at this trucking company that he met his soon-to-be wife, Barbara. In 1961, they were married and Barbara had no idea what Richard did for a living. All that she knew was that they had money coming in, and so she didn't ask any questions. According to a documentary about Richard, he once, he once caught Barbara smoking while she was pregnant and got so mad at her that he stomped on her toe and broke it. He then made her sleep out on the porch for the night. The next day, Barbara had a miscarriage. By 1962, Richard had decided that he wanted to go straight. So Barbara's uncle got him a job at a top rated studio film company within their lab. And Richard did so well, he moved up quickly in rank. Now after a while, his wife Barbara did give birth to a daughter, a daughter they named Merrick. Now Merrick, she had health issues that kept her in and out of hospitals often when she was very young. Richard absolutely cherished his daughter and he did everything he could to care for her. The abuse of Barbara, however, did not stop. Now, later on, Barbara gave birth to yet another daughter, Kristen, with two daughters to take care of. Money again began to get tight and the money from the film lab just wasn't cutting it. So Richard then went looking for work that he knew would pay him far more than what he was getting. So he, along with two other men, were hired to hijack a truckload of watches. Now, when they completed this job, the man who had hired them wouldn't pay them. So Richard shot him along with the three other men who were waiting to unload the truck. Richard and his associates then took the truck and sold it to a man named Phil Solomine. Phil would sell anything from his store as long as the price was right. He didn't care where the merchandise came from. Now, Richard was still with the film company And with two other co-workers who were also looking to make more money. So what they began to do is they began to bootleg hardcore porn after Phil, the store owner, explained to Richard how easy it was to make money in that industry. Phil then introduced Richard to a man named Anthony Argrilla, a man who worked with the Gambino crime family. The Gambino crime family had all the adult shops in the New York area under their control. It wasn't long before Richard quit his job at the film company and started working exclusively with Tony Argrilla and another man named Paul Rothenberg. Now, Tony supplied the shipments and Richard then wholesaled the movies along the East Coast. The deal was, was that after Richard got paid, he would then have to give Tony and Paul their cut. Now, Richard didn't wanna do this though. He instead wanted to keep all of this money for himself and decided to then make his own porn movies. He hired it all out. He never attended the filming. He just wanted the money from it. Now, of course, Paul and Tony, they were not gonna go away quietly. They were not happy that they weren't paid. And unbeknownst to Richard, they had a silent partner named Roy Demio. He got involved. Roy happened to be an associate of the Gambino crime family. And when Roy and Richard met, Roy felt like Richard was disrespecting him. So as Richard is leaving this meeting, Roy and two of his associates pistol whipped Richard. He was beaten up so bad Richard ended up in the hospital. Now, ironically, after this incident, Richard and Roy DeMeo began to work together. Roy hired Richard as a debt collector and a hitman. The whole group, including Richard and Roy, as well as other well-known mobsters, they all worked out of this central location called the Gemini Lounge in Brooklyn. Above the lounge, Was what was referred to as a, quote, killing factory, where victims were killed and then dismembered. They would then be placed in plastic bags and taken away. Now, according to Richard, quote, most people paid their bills, some didn't. I remember one guy who owed a lot of money. He thought he could hide behind a door. It was a nice door, an expensive door. Most people don't realize that when you come to answer a door, if there's a light on in the background, the person on the outside can look through the peephole and see the guy coming. So he came to the door and asked who it was and looked through the peephole. He never saw what hit him. Richard was then asked by the psychiatrist if the dismembering bothered him. And Richard said, I don't think so. I remember having pizza one day while we were doing something like that. Richard further said he didn't like to use chainsaws. Quote, see, the chainsaws are messy all over me. I have these little pieces of meat. Now that's a pain in the neck if I use chainsaws. Now, would I want to ruin a good shirt with a chainsaw? I just used a knife, a butcher knife. You know, you cut it around the bone, a little slice here, a little slice there, wrap it, ship it. Because Richard was doing so well in the porn industry and continued to do hits for the mob, he was making plenty of money and he actually spent it all on his family. He eventually bought a new house in Dumont, New Jersey that had a pool. And according to one documentary, they would often hold barbecues for their neighbors. It was as if he was one guy when he was at home and another guy when he was doing his work. Richard's wife again gave birth, but this time to a son that they named Duane. Now Barbara, yes, she is still continuing to be abused. As a matter of fact, one night, she woke up to find a pillow covering her face. Another night, Richard was standing over her with a gun. On three different occasions, she had her nose broken. It wasn't unusual for Richard to slap and beat his wife, even in front of the kids. Barbara had thought about leaving him, but she knew that Richard would kill all of them. Richard never beat on the children at least physically. One could only imagine the psychological damage that this did to the kids, though, of watching their mom get beat up, especially at such a young age. Now, Richard continued to get phone calls from Roy DeMeo. And remember, this is the same guy that thought he was being disrespected and his associates had pistol whipped him so much so that he had to go to the hospital. Richard Has never forgotten about this. So, as these phone calls from Roy began to become more frequent, it actually became so much so that eventually this became Richard's full time job as being a hitman. Richard, however, he wouldn't always just shoot the person. He would, as we mentioned earlier, sometimes feed them to rats, Uh, he would burn them or even throw them into bottomless pits. Now, eventually, Richard became the top hitman, not only for the Gambinos, but other mob families as well, such as the Pontes and the Decavacantes of New Jersey and the Gambino, Lucchese, Colombo, Genovese and Bonanos families of New York. Now, one of the jobs that he was assigned to do was to get rid of Paul Rothenberg. Now, if you remember, Paul was one of Richard's associates in the porn industry. Richard didn't flinch when he took the job and killed Paul while he was waiting for his wife as she shopped. Richard even supposedly kept notebooks that contained different ways to kill someone. Uh, Some of these ideas included throwing people out of windows, fires, using heavy weights, and even pouring hot water into people's noses. Now, one method he used, according to one documentary, was to take a rawhide, and wet it down. Now, while the rawhide was wet, he would then wrap his victim's limbs and even genitals in the rawhide and then leave them out in the sun so that the rawhide would dry. As the rawhide dried, it tightened until they were utterly unable to move. He would then throw the body in with the rats. Now, evidently another way that Richard used to get rid of a body was to stuff the body into an oil drum and then place it in a car so that it would be crushed and eventually sold as scrap metal to the Japanese car making industry. He would later say that this is what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, but there's no proof to back this up. One way that Richard thought up to kill somebody was to use poison. Now he was still friends with Phil Solomine, the man who had the store that would literally sell anything that came his way. Um, Richard knew that Phil would be able to help. So Phil then put him in contact with a man named Paul Hoffman, who happened to be a pharmacist. Now it was said that Paul could get Richard whatever he wanted and Richard settled on cyanide. Paul then taught Richard how to use it properly how much to use and how to use it to quote, create the most devastation. Now you might wonder, how is it possible for Richard to get away with all of these murders? Well, for one, he was cautious with his methods. He would never give anyone his real name. Uh, To those that did know him, they referred to him as Big Rich. Plus at the time, many of the mob families had police on their payroll. And if they needed to call in a favor, they did. Now the first time that Richard used cyanide was actually on a man named Tony Scavelli. Richard had followed Tony all day until one night Tony decided to go to a dance club. While on the dance floor Richard walked up and injected the cyanide into Tony and within moments Tony was on the floor and everyone just assumed it was a heart attack. Now during the autopsy cyanide wasn't detected at all. The next day, Richard again used cyanide, but this time he added it to a drink at a bar. As time went on, Richard became friends with a man known as Robert Prong, or as he was also known as Mr. Softy, because he would drive an ice cream truck through neighborhoods. Now, Mr. Softy, he also used cyanide, but he instead put it in a spray bottle He would mix it with another ingredient that allowed the cyanide to be absorbed through the skin. Richard really liked this idea, and he ended up trying it and was very happy when it was successful. Now, while all of this is going on, the acting boss of the Bonanno crime family, Carmine Galante, and I know there's two Carmines going on here. This is a different one. Carmine Galante. He's just getting out of jail. The way that Carmine was acting after his release was not something that other families liked. So after giving Carmine time to change, he didn't, although I don't know exactly what it was that he was doing that made everyone so unhappy. um, All of the families got together and decided that Carmine had to go. Now, this was incredibly unusual and was never, ever done. But nonetheless, the families all agreed and Richard was hired to do the job. In July of 1979, Carmine and three of his bodyguards, and this is the Carmine that just got out of of jail, and three of his bodyguards went to have lunch at a local restaurant. Now, just after he finished eating, Richard shot Carmine and his associates took care of Carmine's bodyguards. Now, this was such a big deal that it even made the next morning's paper complete with a photo of Carmine after having been shot lying on the ground in the outdoor dining area. The headline was Godfather Galante Slain. In 1980, one of Richard's associates, George Maliband and Richard, were driving together to New Jersey when they got into an argument. Now Maliband was so furious he threatened Richard's family, which of course caused Richard to become incensed. He stops the car and he shoots Maliban five times in the chest. Now this wasn't a planned hit. Richard had done it completely out of emotion and so he hadn't really planned out what to do with the body. So what he did is he stuffed it in a drum and left it near a chemical plant in Jersey City where it was eventually discovered. Now it wasn't the finding of the body, that got richard in trouble it was the fact that Meliband had actually told his brother who he was meeting with and his brother then turned around and told the police now even though richard's main quote-unquote business if you want to call it that was that of a hitman uh, he still did dabble in other businesses as well especially ones that dealt in stolen goods now one of richard's partners at this time was a man named Louis Masgay, who, like Phil Solomine, had a store, but Louis's store was called Leisure City, and Louis sold also, like Phil, stolen items. So one day, Louis was heading out to purchase some blank videotapes at a large discount. Um, he had around a $100,000 in cash on him. Later that night, when Louis didn't arrive home, His wife called the police. They found his car, but it was locked and abandoned. For two years, the police investigated, and they could never, ever find Lewis. In September of 1983, however, in Orangetown, New York, now this is two years later, and this is just over the New Jersey border, a body had been found along a mountain road. Now, the body had been wrapped in nearly 20 layers of garbage bags. Each bag had been wrapped with tape and tied off with a clothesline. When the body was finally unwrapped, some kind of slick substance encompassed the body. Now, it was clear that the manner of death was a single bullet to the brain. But when the medical examiner began to perform the autopsy, he found that the organs had been well-preserved and there was even ice found inside of this man's heart. The medical examiner then determined that this man had been frozen and likely killed months, maybe even years earlier. After they gathered fingerprints from the man, it was determined that this was in fact Louis Masgay, the 50-year-old shop owner who had disappeared two years earlier he still had on the same clothes that he was wearing the night he disappeared. This is the murder that actually eventually led to the nickname, The Iceman. Now, Richard, around this time, he had formed yet another group that was doing burglaries in New Jersey. And these robberies caught the attention of Detective Kane, um, an informant had actually told Detective Kane about Richard and what he and his gang were doing, although he didn't really know what Richard's real name was. He was referred to as Big Rich. So the members of Richard's group were Danny Deppner, Gary Smith and Percy House. Now, after they had performed a lot of these robberies and everything, uh, Gary, one member of, of this group, had told another member, Percy, that he wanted out. He had a family. He was done with the business. Percy told him he couldn't do this. This is what he signed up for. When Percy told the others about what Gary wanted to do, they all became afraid that Gary was going to rat them all out. So one night... While they were hiding out from the cops at a hotel, Richard headed out to get them all some burgers. When he returned, he gave Danny his burger, and Danny double-checked to see if there were any pickles on his sandwich. There weren't any. Gary, on the other hand, he was so hungry, he devoured his burger, and when he was about a halfway through, the pickles that Richard had laced with cyanide started to work. Gary didn't die right away. So what Danny did was grab a cord from one of the lamps and began to strangle Gary. After a few days had gone by, people who had stayed in the room after this occurred began to complain of a smell. They said that it was coming from the bed. The manager went to go check it out. And after the manager lifted the box springs, they found the body, which had been hidden inside the platform of the bed. In 1982, Paul Hoffman, and this is the pharmacist who had helped Richard with the cyanide, wanted Richard to get a hold of a drug called Tagamet. Now, this is a very popular drug for treating ulcers at the time. He wouldn't let up on Richard. Paul knew that if he could get it for cheap, he could make a killing on the prophets. Now, after he had badgered Richard for some time, Richard went ahead, he set up a deal where Paul could come and get a supply of the drug. Now, Paul brought $25,000 with him and they met at one of Richard's warehouses. Now, according to Richard, quote, he took the bag, opened it, showed me a whole mess of money, a whole mess of cash. He said, look, I got the money right here. And he came back and he said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How am I going to get this merchandise? I put the gun under his chin and said, there is no merchandise and I shot him. He didn't die, he was gurgling. So there was a tire iron there and I took the tire iron and I hit him with it. After he died, I put him in a 50 gallon drum and then put it on the side of a motel. It was behind Harry's corner, which is a restaurant. And I listened to the people. I went in Harry's every morning the thing was there for a long time, out there every day, it was there. One day it was missing. I continued to go into Harry's to see if anything was said about it. Nothing was said. I don't know what happened to that drone. Now, in this snippet, what was not mentioned was that Richard had gone out and purchased some quick concrete, and he filled the barrel with the concrete until the body could no longer be seen. And then he took this barrel and left it outside of a hotel near a hot dog restaurant. And he would visit this restaurant consistently to listen and see if anybody was talking about this barrel. So at this point, the police are gathering as much information as they can on Richard. And one day, Danny Deppner's wife decided to talk to the police. Remember that Danny Deppner uh, was a part of the group that had uh, were doing robberies around the area and uh, was also a part of the group in which they had killed Gary and left his body underneath the bed in the hotel. So Danny Deppner's wife shows up to talk to the police. When Richard found out about this, he again used his trick of putting cyanide in a burger and gave it to Danny. In 1983, a bicyclist was riding down a road in a wooded area when they saw a buzzard feeding on a body. It was Danny Deppner. Now this same year, Roy DeMeo, we keep coming back to Roy, don't we? Roy DeMeo, he was being investigated by the FBI. And Roy, remember, was the guy who originally had sent Richard to the hospital and where Richard ended up, uh, he ended up doing work for him, like kids for him later on. The FBI was curious and they wanted to find out why there were so many people missing that this guy knew. The Gambinos were also upset with Roy because of his quote murderous ways and double crossing. So Richard decides, Hey, let's go ahead and meet up. He meets up with Roy DeMeo. Roy tells Richard everything that was going on and said that he's going to be charged with murder. Richard was worried that Roy would just talk to give himself a more lenient sentence. So as they sat talking, Richard just calmly shot Roy twice in the head. In 1984, Robert Prong, if you remember, this is the Mr. Softy guy who also likes to use cyanide as a way to uh, kill, asked Richard to murder his ex-wife and his eight-year-old son, Now, Richard refused. He did not kill women or children. They argued, and Robert ended up threatening Richard by saying, I know where you live. Robert Prong was then found dead in his Mr. Softy truck with two bullet wounds. Now, by this time, Detective Kane had started to put pieces of the puzzle together, but he didn't have the actual evidence. He was so consumed and frustrated that this case had hit a brick wall that he realized, hey, I need some help. So he asked another officer who had previously and successfully gone undercover to help him. Now, this man was Dominic Polifron and he agreed to help. Now, as far as friends go, Richard's friends, at least, if anyone could consider someone a friend of Richard's, it was Phil Solomine. Phil had actually just recently been picked up by the police, and conveniently, so had Phil's son. Now, Detective Kane told Phil if he would help him help them get Richard, he would reduce the sentence for his son. Phil agreed, and they made a plan. The plan was that Dominic Polifron, the undercover officer and ATF agent, would go by the name of Dominic Provenzano, and he would be an old trusted friend of Phil's that had recently come to town. Now, Dominic's story was that he could get anyone any weapon they wanted. When Dominic arrived at Phil's shop, Phil, as promised, acted like he was an old friend. The regulars got to know him, and soon he was a fixture within the shop. The problem was was that Richard wasn't coming into the store. Phil would call him and try and entice him to come in, but he always said that he was too busy. Now, during this time, it is said that the head of the Gambino family, Paul Castellano, had become a problem, and the Gambino family underboss, Sammy Gravano, suggested killing both Castellano and his bodyguard. Now, Richard claims that he had a meeting with Sammy Gravano about the hit, and Richard was the one, along with others, who was hired to kill Castellanos. Now Richard's job was to take out the bodyguard. So on December 16th of 1985, Paul Castellano and his bodyguard arrived at Sparks Steakhouse in Midtown Manhattan and the hit squad was ready. They took out Castellano and his bodyguard and Richard took a taxi out of town to lay low for a while. Now by this time, a lot of time has gone by. Dominic has been hanging around Phil and the store now for about a year, and he still had not met up with Richard. Now, Phil was still insisting that Richard meet this guy and told Richard, hey, this guy can get you anything. So Richard eventually said, all right, um, have him get me cyanide. But Richard would still not come to the shop. Now, Detective Kane, at this point, he thought this whole operation was taking way too long. So they decided to try a different method. Kane and another officer ended up going to Richard's house to ask him about five murders, all of which, of course, he denied. Richard was pissed. How dare they come to his own home? So he decided then and there that Kane had to go. For weeks, Richard stalked Kane, and he wanted the kill to look like an accident, but he needed cyanide and he didn't have any. So what he did is he called Phil and asked him about this Dominic guy and if he could get him any cyanide. So they agreed to meet at a Dunkin' Donuts where Richard asked Dominic about getting him some cyanide. Dominic told Richard that hey in addition to this i also want to hire you to help help me kill a cocaine dealer richard during this whole conversation at dunkin donuts talked in detail as to how he would use the cyanide even talking about how to use it in a spray so that it was harder to detect he then told dominic how he had once uh, or at least twice put cyanide on a burger to get rid of someone and then told Dominic how he had kept a corpse in a freezer for two and a half years. The whole conversation was recorded. Now, Dominic agreed to supply Richard with cyanide, but it wasn't truly cyanide. And so when it was delivered to Richard, Richard detected that it didn't really look the same as other forms that he had used. So Richard decided to test it on a stray dog. When nothing happened to the dog, Richard instead of following through on this, this hit decided to just go home where then he was arrested near a roadblock near his house in December of 1986, Richard Kuklinski now 51 was arrested for five murders and multiple other crimes, charging him with 19 in total. He was held on a $2 million bail. The police also confiscated his passport after learning that he had an airplane ticket to Switzerland as well as a Swiss bank account. Now at trial, Percy House and Barbara Deppner, Danny Deppner's wife, testified against Richard as did ATF agent, Dominic Polifrone. Kuklinski was represented by a public defender Now, I've always found this interesting. He had the money to hire his own attorneys, right? Maybe he couldn't use this money because it was dirty or the police had already locked down all of his bank accounts. I just simply don't know. But I just did find that very interesting. In March of 1988, a jury convicted Richard of the murder of Gary Smith and Danny Deppner. He was sentenced to a minimum of 60 years in prison. Now, once the trial was over, Richard all but just stood up and said, hey, I also killed Louis Masgay and George Maliband. He was then eventually sentenced to, additional, to two additional life sentences based on this information. Now, Richard at this point would not be eligible for parole into the year 2046 when he would have been 111. He was sent to Trenton State Prison. While in prison, Richard's wife, Barbara, convinced him to do interviews for television producers. And these were ultimately, quote, the Iceman tapes, which was broadcast on HBO. He was then interviewed by a well-known psychiatrist, Dr. Park Dietz. Now, during this series of interviews with the psychiatrist, Dr. Dietz asked him if Richard thought himself an assassin, to which Richard laughs. And he said, sounds so exotic. I was just a murderer. In total, Dr. Dietz interviewed Richard for 13 hours. Unfortunately, the HBO release of this documentary was only about an hour of these tapes. I'd be super curious to know what else was said that we don't know about. Now, towards the end of the interviews with Dr. Dietz, he asks him, he asks Richard why Richard decided to talk with him. And Richard says, I wanted to find out more about myself and you are a person who is highly qualified to give me answers. So Dr. Dietz does give him answers. He tells Richard that he has a quote warp in his personality. He diagnoses Richard with antisocial personality disorder Now, this is someone who has no conscience, no remorse, no guilt, and a tendency towards violence. Part of it is hereditary. Essentially, it takes extreme things to make you feel any fear or danger. But this doesn't mean that you'll become a criminal because of it. It shows itself usually before the age of 15 and includes cruelty to animals and cruelty towards people. The other part of the creation of this disorder is how you are raised. If you raise a kid with love and affection, they will grow up to be caring people. If you raise a child with abuse, as your dad did with you, all you teach is hatred. Dr. Dietz's second diagnosis is paranoid personality disorder. This disorder doesn't allow you to trust anyone. Never let anyone close never forgive anyone who did you wrong and quick to respond with anger or a counterattack. Richard responds with, quote, he has no love in his life, so he replaces it with hate. It's all I've got left. Everything I've ever liked is gone. Everything I ever cared for is gone. Dr. Dietz then replies with, then all you have left is hate, where you started. Richard responds with, then I've come full circle. I guess it's time for me to die. In 2005, Richard had been in prison for about 18 years. He was diagnosed with Kawasaki disease, which is an inflammation of the blood vessels. He was transferred to a secure medical center. And while he was there, he asked the doctors to revive him in the event he did have a heart attack on March 5th of 2006. Richard Kuklinski died. He was 70 years old and his cause of death was in fact a heart attack. But what about this request from Richard to revive him? Well, a week before he died, his now former wife, Barbara had signed a DNR or a do not resuscitate order. The hospital called her and let her know that he did want to be revived they asked Barbara if she then wanted to rescind her instructions, but she said no. As the years went by and investigations into murders reportedly committed by Richard continued, the prevailing thought is that he was exaggerating when he said he killed up to 200 people. Even crime bosses who had turned witnesses in other cases said, quote, I never heard his name, not even once. But, you know, then again, are they really going to out and out say, oh, yeah, I remember him. He was hired 20 times to kill, you know, ABCDE. Was he a mass serial murderer? Or was he just lying through his teeth to get attention? The bottom line is no one will ever really know how many people he killed. I would encourage you, if you're interested in more of the story, to check out the HBO documentaries referred to as the Iceman Tapes. If anything, you'll hear Richard speak for himself, which, in my personal opinion, makes me feel like something creepy is just slithering its way into my soul. And that's it for this episode, my friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate you so much. Don't forget, if you find yourself coming back to listen to more and more of this podcast, I would love it. If you would give it a share or a like, in the future, I'll be offering more ways uh, to help, including getting free merch. How's that sound? So look out for that. Until next time, stay safe, my friends.